Grace and uh, excited to open the word together. I thought because of men's retreat, uh, it would only be me and the women here today. So I had a whole Proverbs 31 thing going on, ready to how to be a godly woman. I can't think of a better person to tell you about that than me, but I see a mixed company, so I'm going to pivot real quick. I threw a PowerPoint together for Ephesians, and we'll talk about that instead. How's how's that? Um, We're excited today. We're actually starting a new series in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at that together. So I was um, crawling into bed one night. It was around 10.30 p.m. This is the way I crawl into bed. I don't know about you. Um, I got the following text message in in bed. It said, uh, hey, sweetie, don't forget to pick up some chunky monkey on the way. Now, this was five years ago. I was single. I did not know Jill. So who is calling me uh, sweetie, right? And, and, or worse, chunky monkey. I don't know whether. Um, and, and how was I their personal delivery boy for ice cream? And on the way to where, right? I had some severe follow-up questions for this text message. I needed context. Right? Context is defined this way. Context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event or statement or text message and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. So for me to fully understand and assess the situation, I needed to know the setting of this text message. I needed to know who wrote it. I needed to know uh, who they were writing it to. And what was the purpose? What was this text message intended for to make sense of it? On the way, from what, to what? And is this, liter- like, is this the type of Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Or am I supposed to search for an obese orangutan, right? Like, what am I supposed to do here? How much ice cream do you need? And why do you need it? Again, I need to know more information. Now, it turned out that the person thought I was a different person. And I'm not here to name names. Um, they had my name confused with somebody else's name. That name may or may not currently be plastered on billboards all over town. I'll just leave it there, right? But without knowing who... You guys are elbowing each other. It's rough, Rich. Without knowing who wrote it and who it was actually intended for and why they wrote it, that's a confusing, creepy text message to get at 10.30 at night, right? Context matters. Context matters. We're going to be starting a new series in Ephesians this morning. Um, We're going to look at this for about 16 weeks. We'll be in the letter. And with a Christmas break, uh, that will put us into about end of February, early March. There are 66 books in our Bibles. And they all have different genre styles. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are stories. The, the book that we're looking at, Ephesians, is a letter. If you grew up in church, you may have heard the word epistle. That just means a letter. And a letter is written by someone and to someone else. And not only that, but this letter was written 2,000 years ago. So this letter was not primarily written to us. It's for us. It's for our benefit. That's why we're reading it this morning. But it is not primarily to us. We are reading someone else's mail today, right? And that's okay. It's not a federal offense. It's probably public domain at this point. But like the mystery text message that I got, we need to know the context of Ephesians if we're going to understand the content 
in a fully, a fully known way. Who wrote it? Who are they writing it to? And what's the context? What, what are they, why are they writing it? What was the purpose and the circumstances around the letter at the time? And that's what we're going to be diving into this morning. We're looking at those first two verses of Ephesians and a little bit outside of the book of, to understand it. First of all, let's look at the author and the uh, audience of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to or scroll to uh, Ephesians chapter 1 going to be on the screen in the Christian Standard Bible. That's short for the, the CSB. Um, no, it's the other way around. CSB is short for the Christian Standard Bible. Um, uh, we would encourage you, even though the verses are on the screen, having that out in front of you, you can verify like what I'm saying or what's up here. Is that what you're actually seeing in God's word? Because that's what matters. That's where the authority is. Um, that's where the power is to, to change. So uh, as we look at this together, we see the first verse. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By God's will. So who wrote this letter? Man, you guys are Bible sleuths. So this, now some books, it doesn't make it very clear, but this one's straightforward, right? It's the literal first word of the book, Paul. Paul wrote this letter, and he's an apostle. An apostle could be defined uh, in a Bible dictionary like this. It's a messenger sent forth with orders. A messenger sent forth with orders. So what message is he sent with? What are his orders? Well, he tells us in, in the book, in chapter 3, he says, I've been sent to proclaim to the Gentiles, that just means non-Jews, to the Gentiles, the, in the words of Michael Scott, the inchalchable riches of Christ, the, the gospel, the riches of who Jesus is for us that you cannot calculate. And then he, 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 is, he says, I am an apostle sent by who? Uh, sent of Christ Jesus. So it's Jesus himself that sent him. And the, the capital A apostles in the Bible, we would say, are those who were directly commissioned by Jesus to go take the good news, to make disciples and plant churches where Jesus' name had not yet been spoken. And then he doubles down on this. He says, by the, God's will. So he underlines that his message, his orders, and his mission come from God himself, the will of God. And who is he writing it to? Well, it's the, it's the very next line. He says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. To the faithful saints. Now, when you hear the word saint, that comes with a little bit of baggage for us, I think. Some of us, we might think of the football team from Nolens that you're missing right now because you chose church instead of the NFL. Um, the, 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 the Bernard, right? A saint that we've all come to love. How about the, the, Mr. Patrick on uh, the day that we love to wear green? Maybe you think of a convent or a monastery. You're going, how do we solve a problem like Maria, um, a good person, we often would say, what are we, they're such a saint. Or, or even at times we use it in a derogatory term. Well, they, they think they're such a saint, right? What are we saying? They think they're so perfect. So what, what is Paul referring to and to whom is Paul referring when he says the word saint? So the word saint, if you were here with us last week, we talked about this a little bit. It means one who is holy, one who is set apart. And this word is used in the New Testament for the church. We've been called out, set apart from the rest of the world unto God. And, and, and so in the New Testament, we often hear this word saint or saints referring to those in the church. Now, at the time, most churches were meeting in homes, in small groups. And so when Paul is going to... So we believe Paul was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's writing these letters... But he didn't, it's not 2022, so he can't just update his blog post and have all the Christians check it out. Paul's ponderings, right? He had to actually had carriers of these letters that he would send out uh, into these, these areas. And so this, this 
letter written to the Ephesians, that just means the church at Ephesus, was actually probably passed around from house church to house church in Ephesus, and even, very likely, to some of the surrounding villages and cities. So he's talking to these guys as saints, but why does he call him them saints? Well, you notice the little the adjective there before it, the faithful saints. Now this word, it can mean someone who is reliable, all faithful, right? We can depend on them. It also, that word means literally full of faith. So it's not just that you can rely on that person, but it's that they are relying on someone else. That they have trust in someone else. And the New Living Translation actually translates this to those who are believers in Christ Jesus. The important thing here is not how reliable the saint is, but on the one whom the saint is relying. Amen? And it says this in the clause. Saints, faithful saints, those who believe in, who? In Christ Jesus himself. And this is a key phrase, in Christ Jesus, Paul's going to use over and over again in the the letter. And make no mistake, they are not called saints because of their own saintliness, an an inherent holiness inside of them. This is a, they, they were very unsaintly, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for their unsaintliness, rose from the grave to give them his own holy spirit, his saintliness is now in them. And that's why they, and that's why we, the only grounds we have to be accepted before our Father. And that's gonna, he's what he's going to explain, is what it means to be in Christ in this beautiful poem in chapter 1 that we'll look at over the course of the next few weeks. So while in Christ is where they are spiritually, geographically they find themselves in Ephesus. And so just like my late night chunky monkey text message, let's check out what's going on in Ephesus at the time so we can get context to the message. Second thing we're going to see is the atmosphere in Ephesus at the time. The atmosphere. Four things I want to draw out. Uh, The first one is that Ephesus was big. It was a big city. It was known as the mother city of Asia. Now, when we think of Asia today, we're thinking of the entire continent. Back then, it was a much smaller uh, land area. This is modern-day Turkey. That, uh, at the province of Asia was that outlined area on the west coast there of what we would now call Turkey. And you can see Ephesus sitting there on the coast. Now, as a port city... Um, it, was, it was a large city, as often is the case even today, as ships were coming uh, in and out of it, as a lot of trade was happening. It, it, it was, at the time, the either fourth or fifth largest city in the world um, at that time. It was a population of around a quarter of a million, which at, for our standards today isn't like huge, it's smaller than Anchorage, but back then, in, in, for ancient standards, that was huge, right? Uh, there was, it was a center for trade and commerce, again, because that was a port city, that's often where trade will start. To, will start. And from that, it then also became a, a political center, a cultural center uh, in, in that area. So this is like, if you can imagine this, this would be like Anchorage and Juneau combining into one place. Right? That's cr- You'd have Dunleavy and Buddy Bailey in the same city. I don't know if we can handle that, right? Um, it was the leading city of the richest region in all of the Roman Empire, a very cosmopolitan, very multi-ethnic. So think like New York City. Think, think Paris. So the city was big, but the city was also uh, very corrupt. Very corrupt. And, and specifically, it was known for its sexual corruption. It said that even, it made Rome look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That, 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 that's the place we had to call to see him in, in the games, right? So this, was, this is a corrupt place. In fact, the first thing you would find off the boat was this sign carved in stone pointing you to the brothel. 
That's what they assumed most people were going. In fact, to this day, they have a, a little footprint there in um, what, what is, where, where Ephesus was. And so when you go off the boat, this is the first thing you saw. And it would say, your footprint has got to be this big to go to the brothel. In other words, you've got to be this old to be able to go. And then they'd give you a map. And it's like, don't go past the library because we know you're not going to the library, right? And then there was this pretty lady by their stone standards. Um, and this is where you, and then they, here was the, the coin that you had to pay to go into the brothel. And it wasn't based on, uh, their, their coin system was based on how large the coin was. So this is how much it would cost to get in. And then this is a heart shape referring to the brothel, and, and, and we'll leave it there. The, the materialism and the sensuality of, of Ephesus was running as rampant as any modern city to this day. And so, so think about, when we think about these little house churches in Ephesus, think about house churches in like modern day San Francisco. This is the kind of environment that they would have found themselves in. It was a big city, it was a corrupt city, and then the next thing we see is that they were religiously diverse, very religiously diverse. It was an epicenter, an epicenter for the worship of both Greek and Roman gods, the last two empires. In fact, they worshipped over 50 uh, Greek and Roman gods. As a trade hub, people are coming in, moving in from all over the known world. And with them, they brought their culture and their religious practices. In that day, that was basically synonymous. And so the people there, they, they had a lot of gods to choose from. And so it was a very you-do-you you culture much in a way that we could relate to today. You just worship whichever god or gods that you want to. Very diverse, but there was one god in particular, or goddess, and her name was Artemis. And, and this is where her temple was. In fact, that's how she became known as, the, as Artemis of the Ephesians. She was uh, the goddess of fertility and, and protection. There was this huge, elaborate temple they built there. It, they said it was four times the size of uh, the Parthenon in Greece. And since you're all intimately familiar with the dimensions of the Parthenon, that's an easy reference for you, right? Um, one of the, it's been known even today as one of the seven ancient wonders of, of the world. Twice a week, they would have this huge parade. And they'd take these statues of Artemis and they'd parade out from the temple around the city and then, and then come back to the temple, like our huge parades that we have over on the Spur Highway at the beginning of every July, right? Same, same scope. Um, thousands of, of pilgrims would come to worship Artemis. And so this was a, a main source of income from the city is the people that would come in to worship and, and buy all the swag, right? This is just like, think about us for three weeks in July and how much our economy depends on those who who come in on those, in those RVs that we all love. Um, the Ephesians spent massive amounts of money and energy trying to keep these gods happy, trying to appease the evil spirits, the gods they were worshiping, to keep them off their back and to get them, to give them what they wanted in their lives. This is the, the spiritual world that they were living in. Last thing we see here is that they hosted a large Jewish population. So if you remember the Bible's story, when Israel was disobeying, God exiled them from the land. And now they have been scattered all over the known world. And so what we see in Ephesus is some of these exiles, the dispersion of, of Jews. There was about a tenth of the population of Ephesus was a Jewish population. So about 20,000 Jews living there. Now, they carried with them their worship of Yahweh. They didn't worship the other gods of that area, most if they were an Orthodox Jew. And so with that came a lot of counter-cultural practices, that they would observe the Sabbath as a family, that they would observe Passover, and they would not engage with a lot of the things that, the, that the, the Gentiles in the area were doing. They weren't a part of all those parades and the holidays. 
They spent their money very differently than their neighbor. They spent their time very different than their neighbors. And because of that, they were often seen as pariahs, as social outcasts, that people viewed them as intolerant, as narrow-minded. In fact, in that day, if you only worshipped one god, you were called an atheist. (laughs) That was not the norm. So they were treated with animosity and were avoided. Now, this is the context that Paul comes into. Little Paul in a big city. The odds, they they seem pretty stacked against Paul, don't they? But Paul arrives with the power of the Holy Spirit in him, and he arrives with the power of the message of the gospel. And for three years, Paul starts teaching the good news of Jesus, and everything starts to change. They see all these people finding freedom from darkness and fear that had been gripping them for generations. In fact, so many people start coming to Christ that they start noticing a drop-off of pilgrimages and parades, those were coming to celebrate Artemis, it actually started affecting the Ephesian economy. How cool would that be if our following and worshiping Jesus was rocking our local economy, right? Maybe that's why Charlie's closed. I don't know, that's a different story. Um, You can read all about this in Acts chapters 19 and 20. This is the third of three missionary trips that Paul made there. And in this moment as they're all repenting of following these false gods, they have this big, like, Harry Potter spell book burning in this big pile. They're just setting all of their, their false god worship and spell books on fire. There's a mass riot uh, as they're listening to Paul's word and changing their way. Church starts to grow and explode in Ephesus and out from Ephesus, and Paul keeps taking this message of Jesus around until he gets arrested and thrown into uh, the prison in, in Rome. And this is actually most likely where he was writing this letter that we're going to read this morning for the next few weeks. It was from this Roman prison. It's about six years, probably, after um, he had been there himself around 60 A.D. And that's a, so for context, that's about 30 years after Jesus has risen and ascended back to the Father. So why is Paul writing this letter to these believers in Ephesus? Let's look at the third and final thing, the aim. What was Paul's aim? We, call the, the, we, we use that language here to talk about the author's intended meaning. What is Paul, the author, intending? What is, why is he writing this letter? What's the purpose of, of the letter? Now, one of the unique things about the letter of Ephesians is it, we don't see in the in the letter itself like as obvious of a specific situation like a conflict or something that was going on like when you read Corinthians First Corinthians that church is a hot mess Corinth was involved in incest and they're fist fighting over the Lord's Supper the Galatians they are they're they're buying into false teaching uh, people that are being taught that they have to be circumcised in order to be saved we see more specific situations we don't see that here with Ephesus. And all, and all uh, for all that we would know, it seemed to be a growing and healthy church. But it's comprised of recovering sinners, like every church, so they have their family issues too. And Paul wants to address three fundamental questions that we see in the book of Ephesians. And these are actually what philosophers have said all through the generations of time. We've, we wrestle with this today just like they did then. So let's, let's key in, let's pay attention to what Paul is telling them. It's for us today too. The first question he wants to address is, who are we? Who are we? This is our study of anthropology, or what it means to be a human. Many of the Gentile Christians, they came in with a lot of baggage. As as they were um, trying to let go of a former identity, they're carrying in an an unhealthy past, and the ideas that had shaped uh, them, that they believed that they were insignificant pawns in the hands of an uncaring god or gods, 
and victims of evil spirits. And, and so there was, they brought in a lot of, of shame, a lot of fear from the way that they used to live. And don't many of us bring similar baggage into the church that, that we carry with us, whether it was wrong ideas about ourselves or reality from our family of origin, maybe a bad church experience, maybe a false view or views of, of our God? How do we know who we really are? Or our modern secular society would say we get to define that. That we, let, we look inside to determine our anthropology. So how do we come into Ephesians? How do we find who we really are? Not only that, there was a lot of animosity in the town between the Gentiles and Jews. And that, of course, spilled into the church. So there's, you got pride. Our group's better than your group. we got divisions, non-yamaka and yamaka sections. Each group claiming to be better than the other. Aren't you glad we don't struggle with that kind of tribalism and division today? <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. You know, I, I, still, I, I still have PTSD coming out of COVID and, and all the fallout that we, we experienced through some of that. How do we find true unity as humans? Paul's going to address this question of identity. And not just who am I, but who are we? Who are we as a human Species? Who are we as the church, his gathering of redeemed humans? Paul wants to talk about who we are, but he also wants to address the idea of, of what is the good life, or what we would say morality. What, what, what do we believe as humans? If this is who we are, then how should we live? The Gentile Christians in Ephesus had to unlearn the corruptive practices from their city. And, and their false views of God and sexuality, their, their whole worldview. The Jewish Christians had to learn what is the new way of following Jesus. Not just life under the old covenant, the law of Moses, but what was all of that pointing to that we now find the reality in, in Christ. What did the way of the good life look like? How could both Jewish and Gentile believers, how should they live in Ephesus without being of Ephesus? And isn't this our battle today as well? How do we live a life of holiness today? our good and God's glory? How do we live faithfully in a, in a modern, secular West where we're constantly being bombarded with the lies of the good life, being told that you will find it in, in busyness or in accomplishing things at work to be productive um, in and of itself, a validation on social media? Maybe it's the shallow gratification that we look for in pornography or shop therapy, as Ross was trying to lead you into earlier. I'll, I'll rebuke him. Um, <laughs> binging Netflix, uh, the, the fear and anger that our, our constant news cycle engenders. There's got to be a better life. Good news in this letter is Paul wants to say there is. There is. Who are we? What is the good life? It's going to be found in, in the third question's answer. Who is God? Who is God? This is our theology. How did you and I get here? Where do we come from? Who made us? And where do we go after this life? Paul's going to argue in Ephesians that the first two answers, who are we and what is the good life, comes from answering this third question, who is God? And I love the way he, he spells this out in the very second verse of the letter. His greeting, he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, this is pulling out a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the, the common Jewish greeting for centuries and up to this time was peace, or the Hebrew word had been shalom. That's how they would greet each other commonly. The Gentile uh, common greeting at the time was this word, uh, was actually the word chayrein. Chayrein, you get, some, you get some phlegm back there and it makes it a lot better. Chayrein, I mean, it meant literally hello or rejoice. 
I want to bring that back. Hello, rejoice. <laughs> That'd be super normal. Um, so what the Christians did was they actually modified chirain to the word charis, which is the word we translate as grace. So they took it, instead of saying, hello, rejoice, they would say, grace. Now, what Paul is doing here, brilliantly, in four word, 14 words, is summing up in his hello how the Jewish, shalom, and Gentile, chirain, Christians would find their identity, their unity, and their purpose. How? Charis. By the grace of God from him. And how did he give it to us? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you Jesus Jedi, you, right? He's just, he's incredible. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's got that going for him. Paul's favorite phrase in the book of Ephesians is in Christ. He's going to use it or a variation of it over 30 times in this small pamphlet-sized letter. And this is, the, this is re- our reality, that only in Christ are we going to find the answer to the question, who am I? And how we find rescue from our old identity and can, and can find who we now are, who God originally intended us to be, and can find that in him, in Christ, and in Christ alone can we find unity as a new family as a new community, a unifying relationships that were previously hostile and broken. And only in Christ can we find rescue from our old, futile, empty, broken path that leads to death and find footing on a good path that can lead us to true life. Now, God's the one. God's the one who gets to tell us who we are, our anthropology, and, and God's the one that tells us how to live, our, our morality, so to know who we are and how we should live must come from our theology, from a right understanding of who God is and what he has said to us. And the only way we can know that is through the written word of God and seen fully in the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Now the outline of Ephesians is as simple as it is beautiful. The first three chapters, we're going to see who we are. Who are we? And he's going to say that our new identity is found in Christ, because of what Christ did for us. That's the only place that we can find our true and new identity. And then um, we're, we're, they're going to they're learn in that, man, that we are not just insignificant pawns. We are not at just trying to manipulate God like, like those were in Ephesus with their gods. That we are chosen and adopted. We're going to sing it at the end of who we are today in God because of Jesus' death and resurrection. But then there's this hinge point in the letter. At chapter 4, he's going to pivot. He's going to say, therefore, therefore, because this is who we are in Christ, therefore, this is how we walk. This is how we live. This is the practice of our lives because of that. The last three chapters, he's going to look at how do we live, how we live. Our new way of life is going to be because of what Christ does in us and what he does through us that you and I have been called out of shame and despair to live a new life of hope and power, that we can walk out who God has created us to be. Now, cards on the table. I, I used to preach almost solely, and we're always a mixed bag. My first few years of preaching, I found a deep need to be desired, validated, approved, loved, accepted by all of you. That I, I needed you to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> I needed you to gasp at my insights. <gasps> That's brilliant, right? I needed you to cry at all the right times when I would emotionally make pleas. 
And I mean, honestly, I still struggle with that on a weekly basis. That's, a, that's some heart work I have to do with God every time before I get up here. But by his grace, he's growing me in that. And honestly, like, the thing that I want for you guys more than anything, it's not just, was this a good sermon? Did I like it? I want you to know God. I, I want you to really know him. Like, I want you to have an intimate relationship with him. That could only happen in the person of Jesus. Like, this is the deep sea exploration of the love of God, and I can't make it for you. There's only one path to know him, and the way that he has most fully revealed himself is through his word. It's what we're going to find here in Ephesians and in the other 65 books of the Bible. For me in my life, one of the biggest turning points in my life was about five and a half years ago, uh, repenting of my pornography addiction. And I started to find not just a freedom from an addiction and from an old way of life, but I found freedom to a whole new life, a place where I could come to God and to be honest with him, to find joy, to find love from God. And this is slow growth. Like, this wasn't all of a sudden, like, one day the lights came on and everything was perfect and every morning the little birds came and helped me get me dressed and opened up my Bible and kind of pooped on the spot I was supposed to read that morning. Like, it wasn't, like, all good from there on out. But it opened this gate for me to spend consistent time with God. And listen, like in any other relationship, like with your spouse, with a friend, there is no substitute for time. There was a, a LifeWay poll that recently came out that said um, out of those who go to church, claim to follow Jesus, that about one in three, actually less than one in three of those people uh, say that they are reading God's word almost every day or basically every day. So that's those, of those who are, cl- are regularly in church and are, who are you know, claiming to follow Jesus, less than a third. I want to take a poll. Raise your hand. No, I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> I'm leaving. Uh, now, why is that? Well, a lot of reasons. There's probably as many reasons as there are people in this room. Some of us, it's unconfessed sin, like mine. I had this huge elephant between me and God that I wasn't addressing. So that was in the way of true intimacy. I read the Bible, but, but I wasn't coming fully as I was. Some of us, it's laziness or busyness, and really, a lot of the times, I think those are the same things. And that's a different sermon or a distraction by other things in our lives. We're doing something with our time. And maybe for some of you, it's like, I want to, and I even do read the Bible, but I don't really know how to truly read it, or at least get anything out of it. Like, have you read Leviticus? Have you read Isaiah? Like, I don't even know what's going on in here. Now, please hear my heart in this. I'm not here to browbeat anybody into just read the Bible every day. This is not a legalistic call that if you check the box and eyes hit the page for a certain amount of minutes that God will be happy and make life go your way and not throw lightning bolts at you. I want to invite you into a real, intimate relationship with the person of God himself. And you cannot have a relationship without listening and speaking. Hear from God his word, talk to him, prayer. I think about with, with my wife, Jill, like I can't have intimacy with Jill just by talking to other people about Jill, right? I can't have a relationship with her by just like reading a bunch of books on Jill. I've actually looked, there's really not out, many out there. 
or just going to Jill concerts and singing songs to Jill, right? That would be really weird. I can come to a Jesus concert, sing songs to Jesus. I can hear sermons or listen to songs about Jesus, read, read books about Jesus. I can listen to podcasts about Jesus without directly engaging with Jesus himself. And in God's word, like, so he's told me as a pastor, my job, like I don't get to choose my job description. He says, my job is not to know God for you. I can't have a relationship for God, with God with, for, on behalf of anybody else. My job, we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4, is to help give tools to the body to shepherd the flock so that you all can know God. So that you all can walk with God. So that, you all, that each of us can serve God in a vibrant, flourishing relationship. So our hope, as we've talked about as elders for this series, is not just to give you a fish every Sunday morning. Teach you how to fish. So you can feast on God yourself. Not only to bring you a meal. Now, that is my job, right? I'm here to preach, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do my best in the kitchen, right? To cook you the best meal I can but also to, deeper than that, to invite you into the kitchen to teach each of us how to feed ourselves. And this is growth, right? This is spiritual maturity. If I'm, if I'm spoon-feeding my daughter Lucy at six months old, that's adorable. If I'm spoon-feeding my daughter at 20 years old, that's creepy, right? Here comes the airplane. No, go to college, get a job, right? Now, I'm not here just to preach to you from Ephesians, but to help you feed yourself on the all-you-can-eat buffet of God's Word. So what's, what's one step toward that? Well, there's a lot of things we can do. Next semester, in our foundations class on Wednesday nights, we're going to be doing that exact, how do we study God's Word? How do we make sense of this? Giving some practical tools. But even through this series, here's what I want to invite us into. It's not just to come every Sunday morning and hear me talk about Ephesians but to be in the book of Ephesians with you and God throughout the next 16 plus weeks. One of the tools that we have to help do that is we have a Bible reading plan. Um, it, it's, there's hard copies in the back on the welcome table. Uh, you can also go to our website. We've made it super easy. Uh, in your, on the back side of the um, sermon notes today, there's a QR code. You can just pull it right up onto your phone. Um, there is, so this is what it looks like. Um, each week we just have some Bible, that's all it is, just the scripture references. So for, this is starting tomorrow, right? So the first, on Monday and Sunday, we just read the passage that's going to be preached on next week. So next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. So let's, before you come hear my thoughts on it, interact directly with God. Come right to the wellspring of life. And then throughout the week, we have Psalms and Proverbs every day. And then we do some, some um, scripture that, that goes with what we're reading. So this week, we're going to be looking at the background in Ephesus in the book of Acts, chapters 18, 19, and, and 20 of Acts. So you can go to that, and you'll see. Here's just the PDF version. That's the hard copy. It's the same thing that's in the back on the, on the welcome table. But you can pull up a PDF. You can print it off yourself. But then there's also a, an online version. Um, and you can just click on that day's link, and it will pull up all three of that day's readings in the Bible Gateway, uh, the Bible reading uh, website. And you can look up that uh, for yourself and follow along. And maybe you say, I'm still trying to learn how to understand what I'm reading. Uh, on that webpage, there's a guide that can ask some questions to how to understand and make sense, kind of process through the passage that you're reading at any given time. So here, here's my, my challenge to you. 
would you commit you commit to reading every day from God's word as we go through this series to make that commitment? I mean, you could read that Bible reading in five to ten minutes. And I actually, I actually encourage people, if this is not, maybe some of you are already, you know, behemoths in this area and you're doing like four-hour, you know, morning devotionals, that's great for you, you Pharisee. No, um, maybe I, start small, but be consistent. That's how a habit's going to grow. So it's just, maybe it's just, just reading that morning's text. And maybe for you it's just, hey, I'm just going to commit to one week. <laughs> like, maybe it needs to start there. Like, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But, but here's my hope, is that as you commit to that, it's not just reading for information. It's reading for transformation. It's to know God. We can only know who we are and how to live by knowing who God is and meeting with him, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. Spirit is relationship, in a relationship with God. That means involving listening and speaking, and in truth, in the reality of who God is, not who I say God is. How do we know who God really is? He tells us in his word, and we see it fully in the Gospels, in the face of Jesus. So I want to end this morning just by praying over you. Um, if you'd close your eyes with me just to kind of focus in. Um, at the end of the first section of Ephesians, Paul just bursts into this prayer of adoration as, as he's just gone over who we are in Christ. So I just want to end our time in the word by praying Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 uh, over us. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through the Spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience, experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to you, God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than anything we could ask or imagine. Glory to you in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, from the Ephesian generation to our generation, God, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.